Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald-Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. Today's podcast features a conversation between MLI Research Advisory Board member, Professor Elliot Tepper, and Dr. Stephen Nagy, who is a leading expert on the Indo-Pacific region. Their conversation helps provide an overview of Canada's role in the Indo-Pacific as a middle power and the roles played by both natural and necessary partners in the region. Enjoy. So pleased you could join us, Professor Nagy. We rarely get a person with your level of expertise coming as you are from Calgary, but out of uh, Tokyo and a very highly esteemed university there. You have a perspective on Canada and Asia that very few can possibly have given your deep engagement. So the questions logically would be, why should Canada care about Asia? In what way should we care about Asia? Where's our relationship going? Do we need more institutional relationships? Questions along those lines. Asia is back. What are we doing about it? Well, first, thanks very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and to talk to you, um, Elliot, and just share some of my views. So Asia is changing. It used to be Asia, then it was the Asia-Pacific, and now a new concept has emerged called the Indo-Pacific. And the Indo-Pacific is being used by countries like Japan, India, Australia, and and the United States. And Canada is thinking about the Indo-Pacific and what does it mean for the Indo-Pacific? Can we use this this term to discuss Canadian issues? Now, when we think about the Indo-Pacific and what it might mean for Canada, I think the first thing is we should understand is the economic dimensions of the Indo-Pacific. Um, we have the two largest, uh, most populous countries in the Indo-Pacific, India and China. Of course, uh, Indonesia, which is the third most populous country within the region. And, and it often is not noticed here that it is. That's right. And along with ASEAN as a collective. That's right. How important that is to us. So these population centers are homes to not tens of megacities, but literally hundreds of megacities. So megacities are those cities over Mm -hmm. 10 million individuals. Mm -hmm. So think about it. 10 million individuals is as big as Ontario Mm -hmm. or Quebec even bigger. So these cities are um, vibrant economic zones. There are areas of economic opportunity. There are areas of innovation. And there are opportunities for Canadians. And we see these in China. We see these in Japan. We see this in South Korea, of course, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and in India, and in Southeast Asia. So first and foremost, I see the Indo-Pacific as a huge economic opportunity. And it is the mecca of economic growth going forward for not just the next 10 years, but the next 100 years. So Canada needs to chart out and think about what the Indo-Pacific region means in terms of economic opportunity. The second area that I think we should be thinking about is in terms of security. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of regional issues that we need to be thinking about Canadians. As Canadians, we have issues in the South China Sea. So the South China Sea is basically a highway for the import and export of commodities, natural resources, energy resources. The the dollar figures alone are staggering. Something like 5 trillion U.S. dollars of trade go through just the South China Sea every year. So that's about a third of the U.S. economy or a third of the Chinese economy and, well, that's 10 times the Canadian economy is about, that's the Canadian economy, right? It is. So just in terms of trade, that we have $5 trillion of trade going through that region, which means 
what happens in the South China Sea not only affects, affects those regional economies, but has global implications. So it is a security challenge in the region. And I'll, let me just explain sure. why some of the secure, there's some security challenges in that region. Um, within the South China Sea, we have many countries that have territorial claims in the South China Sea. And China is, is one of those, ter- those territorial claimants. And it claims what we call the nine dash line. So it's an area that extends from the Philippines down to Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, and then it arches back up towards Vietnam. Much China. of Southeast Asia. Is right. So in late 2014, they began a process of building artificial islands, and they later militarized those islands. And um, they've had challenges in terms of bilateral relations with many of the claimants within the sea. So the South China Sea countries within the regions are worried about what is China's long-term intentions in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a concern for um, not only those countries, but Canada as well, because a disruption in trade in the South China Sea would have implications for global supply chains. Okay, sure global export. The ripple effects are enormous. That's right. And it's an area that we should be concerned about. There's other areas as well. Of course, the East China Sea, Japan and and China have a a territorial dispute, uh, as well as Taiwan with Japan. Mm -hmm. And then we have other security issues, of course, on the Korean Peninsula with uh, North Korea. North Korea is, uh, you know, it's a proliferator of biological, chemical and nuclear weapons and technologies. We've seen those weapons deployed in Malaysia when we saw North Korea kill uh, Kim Jong-un's half-brother in the airport in, in Kuala Lumpur. We've seen missile launching over the Sea of Japan and over Japan. Yes, over Japan, but fortunately it did not come down on That's Japan, right. And these we would are, have a different world today. That's right. And we've seen the proliferation of uh, missile technology and nuclear technology to Pakistan. And there are reports that um, there was efforts to buy nuclear technology from North Korea, from uh, Syria. So, you know, this is area is a cauldron of security challenges that could be have a ripple effect that would be highly destabilizing for the region and the global economy. And in this sense, there's a real security uh, interest from the Canadian standpoint. Those are generalized concerns, yeah. but in what way specifically in terms of Canada and its engagement or lack of engagement with the region, how does that all really come home to us? Okay. So Canada has understood itself as a middle power. So since, you know, really the early 50s, it's tried to be an outstanding global citizen that protects international law. And we do that through peacekeeping operations, by engaging in freedom of protect operations. Um, We did this mostly in Europe. But this idea of protecting international law and ensuring that international law is enforced has been really at the core, I think, of Canadian foreign policy for many, Mm -hmm. many decades. Now, what we've seen in the South China Sea and the East China Sea and in in the Korean Peninsula is that those international laws are being challenged. And if they're being challenged and they're rejected by states within the region, this can have repercussions for Canada. So what we see, um, and I'll give you some background. For example, in 2016, uh, the Permit Court of Arbitrations in The Hague um, they came to, to a decision about Chinese territorial claims in the South China Sea. And they comprehensively rejected the claims by the Chinese. And our Chinese friends uh, decided to push back and reject this decision. Mm-hmm. Now, this has implications for Canada. Again, because we try to uh, promote international law and use international law to protect us from larger countries, when international law is not enforced, when it's not respected, Mm -hmm. um, it has implications for Canada's security uh, concerns. Yes. Canada needs a world, an international order based on law and multilateral institutions. That's right. As a middle power, 
Uh, that's the kind of world in which we can thrive, but also a world in which we are more secure. That's right. How do you see all that evolving going forward? Well, what we see in terms of multilateral organizations and institutions in the Indo-Pacific, we have challenged organizations right now. So ASEAN, mm -hmm. the group of 10 Southeast Asian countries, they function by something called the ASEAN way. So it's a consent, consensus decision-making process where they all have to agree on a decision mm -hmm. before it is enforced. So what we see now, at least since 2012, but we see an escalating pattern of the consensus-based decision-making process being fractured by outside powers, in mm. particular China, providing economic rewards to Cambodia and Laos so that they diverge in terms of their shared interests within the region. Now, this has been a problem in terms of developing a shared stance on territorial issues in the South China Sea. And it's resulted in the prolongation, I think, of, of a shared response. But it's also giving political space for China to, again, build those artificial islands and militarize those islands and create a de facto dominant position in the South China Sea. I call that creating land to make facts, not creating facts on the ground, but creating ground to make facts. And in terms of ASEAN, we've been engaged with ASEAN yeah. since quite early in its existence. We were observers very early on. Yeah. We now have an ambassador to ASEAN. So we have taken ASEAN fairly seriously for a fairly long time. And now uh, as one of the few organizational responses to a vacuum in the region to organizational responses, the fact that it's under some stress is a matter of concern. It sure is. And, and it means that Canada can't engage with ASEAN on heavy issues as an institution. It means that we have to kind of dilute our diplomatic bandwidth and work with each of the 10 members yeah. to try and get them on board. And this is hard. You know, Canada, of course, is geographically a big country. But in terms of, you know, the size of its economy, its diplomatic core, it's not as big as, as we would like. So it makes it more difficult to uh, press for Canadian issues within the region. Now, going back to our discussion about, mm -hmm. you know, this economic agenda, this security agenda, there's something also called what we call non-traditional security issues. Right. So this could be human security, it could be food security. What is human security? Human security... From the Canadian standpoint, is looking at freedom from fear. Mm -hmm. So uh, freedom from fear is generally this idea that people in living in countries should be free from fearing their own government. Mm -hmm. um, the Japanese conception of, of human security is using freedom from want. And there's some overlap. But what we're seeing more and more in Southeast Asia and South Asia is some communities, for example, the Rohingya, this issue came two years ago or three years ago was quite prominent, the Rohingya people were subjected to violence and, and, and mm. harassment by the Myanmar government. So this would be... by a, the UN, a textbook case uh, of genocide. That's right. So within the region, there's many of these human security challenges mm -hmm. that I think that we should keep our eyes on. As Canadians, we, we are quite open to refugees. We're quite open to the humanitarian causes. And these are going to be centers of many humanitarian challenges going forward. One, because of the kinds of governments that exist in the region. I think another area of climate change and trying mm -hmm. to create you know, global structures to deal with the real impact of climate change within the region. Countries like Bangladesh, the Mekong Delta, so that would be Cambodia, mm -hmm. Laos, and Vietnam. Mm -hmm. As climate change changes the Mekong, which provides the food sources for not only millions of people, mm -hmm. but tens of millions of people become salinated. It will change the amount of rice crops that are in the region, uh, the fish stocks, and it will fundamentally challenge their ability to feed themselves. So how will they react? We don't know. They could uh, move more inward, which will create pressure on, on the, the governments to deal with 
uh, to manage these people. Uh, they could migrate into other areas. And when people migrate en masse, it creates huge problems in mm -hmm. terms of managing them. So I think this area, the Indo-Pacific, is going to be an area of concern from Canada's point of view in terms of how do we manage the inevitable challenges that come from climate change and how it will affect huge numbers of people in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And, and this will be something that we will, we will challenge our views about humanitarian action. It will challenge our views about human security. And it will also force us to deal with the likely terrorism and uh, radicalism that will come out of societies that are, are in crisis, that are under huge environmental and government pressure. Doesn't that suggest that Canada needs a much deeper engagement with um, the Indo-Pacific collectively in terms of creating regional institutions that can deal with these stresses and strains and bilaterally one state after another after another in terms of such issues as uh, anti-terrorism, in terms of uh, the various elements that you just described in terms of population movements, etc. So Canada needs to think about its comparative advantages. And first and foremost, again, we're not a huge country. We don't have the same capabilities as the United States. We don't have a huge Navy. So to you know, use our military capability to deal with some of these issues are, is, is really, you know, it's, it's overly optimistic. So we need to think about what our comparative advantage is, who are our natural partners, who are our needed partners, and who are those countries that are difficult, but we need to find ways to work That's with. three different categories. Can you go through each one? Yeah. So when I, how I understand those natural partners, I do think that they are countries that have shared values, such as mm -hmm. liberal democratic institutions, um, the free and open societies, they respect human rights, regular elections. I think these are really important. So the, the natural okay. categories are Japan, mm -hmm. South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, arguably Taiwan. Taiwan is, a, is not a country officially, but in many ways, it's a de facto state. It has a regular side of elections, it's a liberal democratic society. So those are collective countries. Of course, our, our United States is a partner, a European partners, that need to work together to form a shared vision of the region and you know, create a pool of capacities to deal with the real challenges going forward. Hmm. Um, those security challenges, economic challenges, and some of those human security challenges that I mentioned. The second category of countries that I mean uh, that I mentioned is those needed countries, and in this case, they may not share the same values, but they share the same interests and norms. Mm -hmm. So let's think think about this. So we have the Philippines. The Philippines right now, President Duterte, uh, I think, has many shared interests and norms with Canada and other countries within the region. However, his form of governance is is has been atypical in the Philippine ca case. Our Thai friends, um, right now they have a military dictatorship. In some ways, we can work together very carefully with them. In other ways, it's more of a challenge. Singapore is, is, is semi-dictatorship or semi-democracy. Authoritarian, soft authoritarian. Soft authoritarian. Yes. But we have many shared values mm -hmm. and, and, and our shared norms and interests with Singapore as well, Indonesia, Vietnam. So those are what I call countries that are needed and that we have shared norms and interests that are areas of collaboration that we can work on. The third area is those countries that are actually necessary, but are probably more difficult to work with. You know, we've seen Canadian-China relations spiral in a very negative direction over the past six months um, mm -hmm. since the arrest of uh, Ms. Uh, Meng Wanzhou and the subsequent political arrests of Michael Korvig and Michael Spavro. And they're still in prison today. We should be very clear Under about that. Under very harsh conditions. That's right. China is a challenge, but it's also a needed partner in dealing with 
regional issues and global issues, whether it's those climate change issues, whether it's the security challenges within the region, whether it's going to be those human security challenges that do evolve, China has the capacity to help deal with these problems. And we're going to need to work with it and somehow compartmentalize the difficult aspects of a relationship with China and think about comprehensive relationship with China. And that's normal. Think about a husband-wife relationship. Most husband-wife relationships compartmentalize, right? And, and, and I think it's a, it's, it's a fairly good analogy. We have a comprehensive relationship and we need to somehow compartmentalize the troubles so we can keep everything together. So in the case of those necessary partners, I think China is a necessary partner to work on these issues. Russia is as well. You know, Russia does have a lot of capabilities, in particular technology and capacity that will be needed to deal with these large-scale human, humanitarian issues. So we have to define places that they can cooperate in building this region. At the same time, we should be strong and we should work with those needed as well as um, natural partners to ensure that those middle power interests, those people, that, those countries that have nat- those natural partners are not um, overshadowed or thrown aside by um, these big superpowers like China. Do you think it's time now to have a more formal middle power club? Uh, We know that there are certain countries that are called middle power, perceive themselves, although within that there's definitional issues. You know, is Japan a middle power compared to Canada, et cetera? But we don't really work collectively in in, in the global sphere. Is it time to institutionalize or create structures which can affect geopolitics going forward? So in my view, I think that um, the definition of middle powers is how we behave in the international community. So are we focusing on buttressing international law and promoting global governance and trying to create or promote multilateralism? And in that case, when I look at countries like Japan, I think they behave as a middle power. Their capacity is of a major or great power. I, I cannot doubt that. But their behavior is really, you know, trying to ensure that international institutions work. So here, I think that there's a lot of space for Canada, Japan, Australia, perhaps South Korea. India right now is considered a middle power in terms of its behavior. In 10 or 20 years, it will be a great power. But can these countries work together to uh, form a critical mass? It's not only a a diplomatic mass, it's an economic mass. It's a a mass of shared capabilities that can uh, help shape the Indo-Pacific region Mm. and shape some of the major players in the Indo-Pacific. And I'm particularly speaking of China and the United States as the major players. In terms of China, I think that middle powers can work as a constellation of countries that can perhaps provide some economic space for um, their members or their, their, uh, their coalition and to absorb some of the punitive economic coercive measures that China does use. Coercive diplomacy. That we've seen in Canada mm-hmm. and South Korea and Japan and Australia mm-hmm. and the Philippines and Norway to basically ensure that Beijing, if it does pull this economic coercion card, that the middle powers have a group of countries that they can rely on to absorb uh, some of the punitive economic pain. I think that is one way to work together. The second way is to sh- share capacities and create a, a cohesive unit that is buttressing rules-based behavior in, for example, the South China Sea. 
but also to pressure the United States. Um, we've seen that the United States turned towards uh, a direction of America first, more unilateral behavior over the past three, three years. And we need to uh, encourage the United States, of course, to you know, push for its national interests, but it shouldn't push for its national interests while pushing aside the natural, national interests of some of its closest partners, such as Canada, Japan, or Australia. So we should use that middle power, critical mass, to try and encourage the United States to move towards a more multilateral direction, or at least find ways to cooperate in ways that meet the national interests of the middle powers as well as the United States. Canada, living next to the United States and having European roots, is a natural gravity well pulling us toward the U.S., north-south, and then because of the past connections to Europe, that's been a, a pull as well. And yet, Asia is clearly on the rise. Uh, this is a rising part of the world, or as some of us who have studied it a long time will say, they're back. Asia is back, and they're demanding their space and their time and, and uh, our attention. Is there advice you can give to Canadians as citizens, but also as to our government as to what do we do about a rising Asia? Mm, great question. So Asia is not rising. Asia is not back. Asia is here. Indeed. And without a doubt, it will be the economic center of the world, and it will be a center of both prosperity, friction, and geopolitical challenges. So we need to recognize that as Canadians. Second, I think that although we do have European roots and we do have a strong relationship with the United States, uh, we should be very clear that our Canadian population is not just European. We have Chinese Canadians, Japanese Canadians, Indian Canadians. Uh, I'm sorry if I missed all the others, but there's more than five million or six million Canadians today that have roots in the Indo-Pacific. Well, the Philippines has been our number one source for That's immigrants right. for some time. And we know about the, uh, the South Asian connection, as well as, of course, the, the greater China connection. That's right. So, you know, although we do have European roots, I think that, you know, our Indo-Pacific Canadians already have strong links there. So as a Canadian government, I think some approaches that we should be engaging to build our presence and build a raison d'etre in that region, first and foremost is that we need to uh, ensure that our Indo-Pacific Canadians from the whole region, that we can leverage their strong roots in the region to build business communities and mm -hmm. bus business interactions and business opportunities. We need to use their backgrounds and expertise to get a better understanding of the nuances of the region and the diversity that exists in the region. We need to ensure that other Canadians are learning those important languages within the region. So it's not just Mandarin. China is not the Indo-Pacific. It's not Asia. China forms a part of the region. So we need um, Bahasa speakers, we need Punjabi speakers, we need Vietnamese speakers, Japanese speakers, South Korean speakers, Cantonese speakers. You know, um, China is not just a Mandarin-speaking country. Cantonese is one of the major languages. So we need to get Canadians learning those languages, getting not only national experience, for example, I, I have experience in Japan and uh, Hong Kong and China, but to have a broad understanding of the region, not just through a one national perspective, but hopefully a broader national perspective. So language. The Asia-Pacific Foundation is also producing, now it's called the Asia-Pacific Education Framework. So uh, an educational textbook that introduces Canadians to 
the various dimensions of the Asia Pacific or the Indo Pacific. So I think more uh, Indo Pacific education and awareness is also really important to build that acumen that will allow Canadians to leverage some language, leverage knowledge, leverage networks to find business opportunities and other opportunities within the region. Canada has the world yeah. as Canada. Yeah. So the human capital and the social capital that our population brings is a natural advantage that we do not yet actually realize sufficiently. And also, if we do not have a curriculum from at least in the universities yeah. and perhaps uh, pre-university, but certainly within our universities, we need to have people who are capable of understanding and dealing with the reality that Asia is here. It's vast and it's changing quickly. And there's both opportunity and crisis that we need to be aware of. The opportunity to gain economic advantage as Canadians, but also we want to ensure that we're impacted in a positive, not negative, by some of the challenges and crises that will likely occur within the region. And those are things that we need to keep our eye on. We need to build the human capital to be able to identify them and find the opportunity in crisis, as the Chinese saying goes. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to do that is to, uh, through education, language, leveraging the diversity of our Canadians. And lastly, you know, I think I would like to see more interaction between our different ethnic communities in Canada. So, for example, there's a Chinese association, an India association, Pakistan association. Through more collaboration with those those ethnic Canadian associations, um, they themselves could find more opportunity in terms of collaboration, rather than just, uh, you know, let's say the India Association of Canada and India. Well, maybe that India Association of Canada can work with the Canadian Association of Canada to find opportunities in all three countries. And that kind of interaction is a synergistic interaction and, and it can create a lot of, of opportunity. We have the material to work with. We have the challenges in front of us. Yeah. We have a changing world. And Asia is going to be part of that mix. It's up to us, I think, to now to respond at a government policy level, but also at a societal level for the future, which is here and which is coming down the road. Absolutely. So the future is not the Indo-Pacific. It's The present is the Indo-Pacific. And we need to turn our eyes there and look for opportunity, uh, understand the challenges, and really build uh, the human capital to engage on Canadian interests, but also with those natural, needed, and those necessary partners that I mentioned the earlier. Three, the three you mentioned. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I so appreciate you sharing your very special perspective coming from Canada, but doing so much living in Asia and working uh, in various places throughout Asia. You brought a great deal to our uh, to our own understanding, and I'm sure that the McDonald Laurier Institute and our listeners will definitely benefit from your insights. Thank you very much for the great opportunity, and uh, I look forward to contributing again in the future.